Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Are you thankful for the blood of Christ? No hope without it, every hope because of it. This morning we are going to continue to look at the book of Philippians. Uh, For those of you that have been here a while, you know we started in Philippians back in the fall and then we had Thanksgiving and the Advent season and last year, I mean last year, yeah it was last year, but it was also last week, um, (laughs) I I preached a message uh, to sort of orient our lives for the new year. Uh, and today we're going to dive back in to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. So uh, I'm excited to welcome you to 24 as we return to this book. And if you find your way to chapter 3 verse 1, that's where we're going to be. And so far in Philippians, just kind of remind you of the context. We've seen that living the Christian life means living in gospel partnership doesn't mean living as an island. It means living in partnership with other believers. And that means that we face external opposition to the gospel together in the strength of the Spirit. And it means that we've got to remain united. We've got enough to deal with in a world that wants to undermine us. So we need to pursue unity consistently in the gospel and rejoice in the good news of the gospel. For this is our eternal, everlasting hope And as we do this, we've got to emulate the selflessness of our Savior as we serve one another. The the model, the supreme model, is Jesus, who though He is God, came on a rescue mission. He didn't consider Himself to be cheated. Uh, He came and left heaven to, to become a man, and not just become a man, to become a man who would die, not just die any death, but die the death of a cross, And we live in this way toward one another to pursue and secure the unity that God gives in the gospel. And then at the end of chapter 2, Paul sort of begins to transition to explaining the sending of this letter to the church at Philippi. And he explains why their messenger, Epaphroditus, is the one that he's sending back with this letter. And as he makes that explanation, he He presents both Timothy, who's with him, that he's not able to send yet, and Epaphroditus as these pictures of Christ's likeness in their faithfulness to Jesus, in their faithfulness to the gospel and to the local church. So as we turn to chapter 3, Paul now reminds the entire church of their identity as believers in Jesus, and his reminder includes a warning. It includes a warning about people who are apparently telling the Philippian Christians to embrace outward signs of Jewish identity, like circumcision and Sabbath observance and regulations and dietary restrictions in the law of Moses, to to basically become Jewish in order to get Jesus. To become Jewish in order to avoid the sufferings and the pressures 
that are being faced by Christians for following Jesus and not Caesar as Lord and Savior. Hey, just, just back off the Jesus thing a little bit and just do the Jewish thing because that's not being persecuted right now. And in that, you can find safety. But Paul's not going to tolerate that. He won't at all tolerate the idea that anyone who trusts in Jesus is somehow a second-class kingdom citizen or that he needs to add something to Jesus and the gospel. The hope for all people, the hope for the people of God, is not in becoming an Israelite ethnically or culturally, but spiritually, being changed on the inside. Hope belongs to all who become children of God through faith in Jesus, Israel's Messiah and God's Son, period, into the sentence. But as pressure for following Jesus is on the rise, the temptation to become Jewish and try to keep Jesus is lurking in the background in Philippi. And so Paul reminds the church that a child of God is a child of God through faith in Jesus alone. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? We're only going to make it to verse 3 this morning. I wanted to go all the way to 11, and then I thought I'd make it all the way to 6 or 7, and then we're going to make it to verse 3. All right? This is what Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You won't find this verse in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's going to take us a while to get there, but what I want to show you from this text ultimately is three essential marks of every child of God. But before we get there, the first thing we see in verse 1 is if we're going to be protected in the gospel, if we're going to remain united in the gospel, we've got to rejoice in the Lord and be reminded of the gospel. I love verse 1. Paul begins with the word finally. And when he says finally, he's not announcing that he's come to his last topic. Because there's two more chapters, right? He, he's not like Daniel. And finally, my third point, and then you're here for another 45 minutes. right? What he means is he's transitioning really to the application of the foundation that he's laid in chapters 1 and 2. For them to stand firm in the gospel, they can't lose sight of the joy or the gist of the gospel. So Paul commands the church once again to be characterized by ongoing rejoicing. This is a word that's in the present tense. Just keep on rejoicing. So now that you know why Epaphroditus has come, now that you know that he's well and that he longs for your well-being and he's brought you the letter that you're now reading, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 18, he commands them to be glad and to rejoice even when suffering for the sake of Christ. And now he says, rejoice in the Lord. The, the Lord is the sphere of our rejoicing. Fee says this, what is commanded is not a feeling, but an activity. Paul is commanding the church to verbalize 
the goodness of the Lord, to sing and to praise, and to do so in the Lord. Their rejoicing is in the Lord. Some people come to church and they can't rejoice because they didn't pick the song they wanted to sing. Well, you, your rejoicing was in yourself or in your, your preferences, not in the Lord. They are not to lift their voices for the sake of making noise. Their rejoicing is to be not in their status or their accomplishments or their favorite musical style, but in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because it's the Lord who saves, not your favorite style. And it is the Lord who's the focus and the subject of the church's singing and praise long before the advent of amplification, long before we had mains and switches and soundboards and microphones, the church has rejoiced. Long before there was ever an electric guitar, long before there was any instrument in any worship service, the church has rejoiced. We don't sing to be seen. We don't sing to make a show. We don't come for smoke. We come for the Savior. Our praise doesn't depend on the tempo, but on the timeless truths of the gospel. We don't come for a concert. We come for our King. So Paul reminds this church, a church faced with the temptation to fracture and sideline the gospel, to rejoice in the Lord. Tell of His goodness, tell of His glory, tell of His grace, sing of His saving power and of His majesty. And then Paul tells them he's going to tell them the same thing that he's already told them. You ever get tired of hearing the same old thing? Daniel, you preached that last week. Daniel, didn't you already say that? Daniel, why do you keep on hammering on this, that, and the other? Because we need the gospel. We're here because of the gospel and for the gospel. Where would we be without the gospel? And when Paul was with the Philippians and founded the church, he preached the gospel and he told them about people who were going to try to add to the gospel and undermine the gospel. And here's what Paul says in a letter. Everything that I've told you, I'm going to tell you again. And he can hear the, the murmuring. He can hear the questioning. Paul, isn't there more? Can't we progress? Can't we advance? And, and then Paul says this, to write the same things. I, I love how he turns this. Because he's picturing in his mind the guy's going to be like, you're just so repetitive. Don't you have anything novel to say? Paul says, to write the same things is not trouble to me. I don't mind having to repeat myself. The same things comes at the very beginning of this sentence. And then the word safe comes at the very end. Trustworthy, reliable, secure. Do you want to be trustworthy? Do you want to be secure in Christ? Then you've got to keep hearing the gospel. Paul is emphasizing that safety is found in the same essential gospel truths that run counter to our fleshly tendencies to make religion about what we do and what we like rather than what about what Christ has done and who he is. Why is Paul happy to repeat himself as he repeats the gospel and refutes false gospels? Because it is for their protection. It is for their safety. Because he loves them. Because those who endure to the end are those who are truly saved. But those who think they're saved, but they end up running to false gospels of their own achievement and their own merit, they never really believe Christ in the first place. Eternity hangs in the balance. And repetition of the same old gospel story is for their safety. Paul writes against anyone who would add to the gospel. In particular, it seems he's writing against the teaching of, 
a group of people that Bible scholars call Judaizers, people that claimed they knew Jesus but, at, but argued that Gentiles had to become Jews before becoming Christians. They argued that being circumcised and taking on the law of Moses, especially Sabbath-keeping and dietary laws, that they had to take them on as their identity if they wanted to really be a child of God. In other words, they were saying, it's not enough to be a Jesus person, you got to be a Jewish person. We read about such people in Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. But to argue in this way is to completely misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's done. It is to miss that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. It is to fail to understand that all who are in Jesus, the one true vine by faith, are God's one people. Any other understanding of Jesus naturally regresses to works righteousness. That I can work my way to God, that I can be good enough to get to God, that I can earn God. It is a damning belief that we must contribute to our salvation and earn our way to God. And whether it's Judaism, Catholicism, Mormonism, or any other ism that says that God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone isn't enough for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile alike, such teaching is to be thoroughly avoided and denounced. Every system that moves us from what God has done and tells us we've got to earn or, de or deserve grace actually redefines grace as something other than grace. Grace is God's gift of salvation. It's the whole package. It's the whole enchilada. There's nothing lacking in it. And it's not like Mormonism where you got to be good enough to then get God's grace. God just gives it out of the lavish love of his heart for his children to be received by faith. No matter how nice the people are who preach this anti-grace gospel, which is no gospel at all, it is absolute trash that undermines Jesus and leads people to hell with a self-righteous smile on their faces. So Paul says of these nice Judaizers, they look put together, they're circumcised after all, they rest on Saturdays. What does he say about these people? Look at verse 2. By the way, Paul couldn't be a pastor in some churches. <clears throat> people say, well, Paul just wasn't nice to those people. They just needed to have a conversation. He just needed to listen to them a little longer, and then they would have believed in Jesus. That's not what Paul says in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Church, we live in a society of nice. We live in a culture of just be nice to everybody and th all get along, sing kumbaya, and there's no real differences between them and us. And yada, yada, yada. Baloney. There's a massive difference between the people of God rescued by the gospel of God and anyone who wants to preach a so-called self-righteous gospel. 
And we, like Paul and the Philippians, got to look out for and be unmistakably clear about the horrors of heresy. Verse 2, Paul commands the church to keep on looking out, be vigilant, be watchful, be on guard for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. He doesn't say, you know, those are some very nice people who don't eat pork and rest every Saturday. He sees the world from the frame of eternity. There are people who are being saved and people who are perishing, and in the meantime, heresy must be called out. He's not trying to win an award for being nice. He's protecting God's people by speaking clearly and accurately about anyone who would undermine the grace of God. And the first thing he says is that these people who are insisting that Gentiles become Jews to become God's people are dogs. Now some of you like your cute little puppy dog. I guess not so bad. But in those days, as Marita writes, dogs weren't viewed as cute little pets. They were nasty unclean, dangerous, disease-carrying little rascals. Paul viewed these teachers like feral dogs. And by calling them dogs, he is actually reversing the insult of the Judaizers. As we see in Mark chapter 7, 27 through 29, Jews often called Gentiles dogs. They thought of them as nasty dogs. But do you see what Paul is saying? By insisting that the Gentiles become clean through Jewish ritual, they are the ones who've actually become the unclean dogs. Anyone who comes and argues for anything or anyone other than Christ to make us the children of God, anybody who says that anything more than Christ or less than Christ can make you clean, they are actually unclean themselves. Stay away. They're like a dangerous, rabid dog that threatens to bring death and disease to a pure gospel of Jesus Christ that stands on its own two feet and needs no help from anyone else. The gospel needs no addition and no improvement. It never has and it never will. It's the same old story, the same old gospel story by which we are saved and how we stand until Christ returns. But Paul was just warming up when he called them dogs. Then he calls them evildoers. That term, evildoers, should be familiar to us. We see it throughout the Psalms. It's the term, workers of iniquity. Do you see what Paul is saying to these, about these people who cherish their Jewish identity? Who would have known the Psalms and would have known the phrase, workers of iniquity? He says, these people are actually the workers of iniquity in the Psalms. They're not to be compromised with, reasoned with, or negotiated with in claiming that anyone or anything other than Jesus can bring you into God's family. They've become the actual enemies of God's people. When we read about the workers of iniquity in the Psalms, they think about the Gentiles. But spiritually... Those who say you got to become a Jew to get to Jesus are actually the evildoers. They think they're on the side of God's righteousness in telling you to add Jewish circumcision and tradition to Jesus, but they are terribly mistaken. Though they are the descendants of Abraham by birth, they're actually wickedly opposing the true sons and daughters of Abraham who have God as their father through faith in his son. 
Paul puts it this way in Romans 4.13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Faith in who? The promised Son of God. By arguing that Gentiles got to perform the righteousness of the law, these Judaizers are proving they have neither God nor Abraham as their father. They are evil because they're opposing the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Finally, Paul calls these proponents of circumcision the mutilators of the flesh. The Greek word for circumcision means to cut around. And the word for mutilation is very similar to the word circumcision, but it means to cut to pieces. I want you to be sure to cut to catch Paul's devastating reversal of what these Judaizers are thinking of themselves. They think their Jewishness makes them extra special. That they have something that Christ can't give. Something that only comes from a cutting around But their insistence that Gentiles have a cutting around of the male organ is really making them mutilators. And this word mutilators comes right out of Leviticus 21 verse 5 where God talks about pagan priests who sought to find access and favor with the gods by cutting themselves to pieces. They thought they needed to cut themselves to get access to the gods, just make themselves sacrifice to get to God. They didn't know about the great God who would send His Son to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And they were trying to manipulate the gods constantly by cutting. Oh, if I just make myself feel bad, then the gods will be nice to me. That's where cutting comes from, by the way. It's paganism. Anytime anyone insists on adding something to Jesus for you to be right with God, they're adding a requirement to God's grace. And when they add to grace, they eliminate grace by making salvation about what we do rather than what God has given in Christ. Which leads us to boast not in Jesus but in ourselves. And all of this, no matter how much they mention Jesus, no matter how nice they dress or how much coffee they don't drink, is just a deceptive version of paganism. It is a selfish attempt at manipulating the gods based on your qualities and your behaviors. And Fee says this, Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride, which was circumcision... And he interprets it as the surest sign that they have no share among God's people. They're no better, he is telling us, than the pagan priests. Can you imagine the Judaizers hearing this? You think you're so great, you're so special because of circumcision. You're actually like the pagan priests who cut themselves to curry the favor of the gods. In Galatians 6.15, Paul tells us neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It's not about whether you've been circumcised or not circumcised. What is it about? He then tells us it's about a new creation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lifeless on the inside. You had to be made new. And the only way that could happen is not through what you do, but through what God has done in Christ. And that new creation doesn't come about by becoming Jewish outwardly, but through faith in Jesus who transforms us inwardly. 
Paul says it this way in Romans 2.29, a Jew, meaning a true child of God, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is from, excuse me, is not from man, but from God. It's this same sort of idea that Paul has in mind in verse 3, as he says, For we are the circumcision. Do you see it in verse 3? For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you want to know if you're a child of God this morning? Paul gives us three indicators in verse 3. Three, three things that characterize every true child of God. In verse 3, after saying the, the Judaizers are not God's people because they insist on circumcision, Paul says we are the circumcision, showing us that we've got to understand that God's people serve Him by the Spirit, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. We in verse 3, is placed at the very front of the sentence for emphasis. They think they're the people of God, but we already are what they think they are. They think physical circumcision makes them God's people, but we, who's we? Paul and the Philippians, Jews and Gentiles together, are the true circumcision. We, God's people, the church, are set apart in the heart by God and for God, the, the church comprised of circumcised and uncircumcised, men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, laborer, day laborer and governing official, jailer and slave, and Lydia, the rich woman who sold her wares of purple. All of these people are God's people. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul calls us the Israel of God. Then after boldly asserting that he and the Philippians are God's people, he gives us three marks or characteristics of Christians. Those who have experienced true circumcision, circumcision of the heart, a heart that's been convicted of sin and converted by God and set apart by God to commune with him, these are the children of God. If belonging to God doesn't come by way of physical birth or religious rituals or symbols or icons, who then belongs to God? It's an important question. It's one of the most important questions you could ask and answer. And Paul shows us first that Christians are those, children of God are those who worship by or in the Spirit of God. In John 4.24, Jesus tells us, the worship of God is not about a location. You remember the story of the woman at the well? Where do we worship? Do we worship over here? Do we worship over there? And God says, Jesus says, it's, it's not about a location. It's about our communion, the communion of our spirit with God's spirit. He says God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then here in verse 3, those who worship God are those who worship in the Spirit or by the Spirit of God. Now what's interesting is Paul uses a slightly different word for worship than Jesus does in John 4. The word that he uses for worship in this text is the word that is not restricted to, to things that we would formally associate with worship. 
It's not just gathering and singing and praying and reading and hearing the Scriptures. It includes that, but it's more than that. This, this is a comprehensive word that describes the service of priests and Levites in the temple. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, the service of priests and Levites in the temple, it was their whole life. Everything they did was oriented around their service in the temple. And Paul uses that word to say that's what Christians are. We are all priests serving in the temple of God because he made us new on the inside so that we could have his presence with us everywhere we go. We are the temple. God's given us His presence on the inside such that our whole life, not just when we gather on Sunday morning, that everything we say, do, and think would be oriented to the glory of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. We worship God from the Spirit. And he says the people who are glorying in their circumcision actually aren't circumcised. They haven't really been set apart for God because unless you got the Spirit of God, you haven't yet been set apart for the glory of God because you aren't yet a part of the temple of God that's expanding to the ends of the earth. And he says now it's the church that is God's temple at all times. We, the believers in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, are God's temple as we live our lives as an act of service to God in God's presence. What a miracle, what a joy. God goes with you into the parking lot today. He goes with you to lunch. He goes with you to your house. And it's possible because of the miracle of salvation accomplished not by us, but by the Spirit who now indwells us. Through the hearing of the gospel and the repentance of sin and belief of sinners in Jesus, God changes the human being on the inside. He forgives her sin and makes her new. And he sees her like his own son, Jesus, allowing her to have communion with God by his Spirit. To be a child of God, you must be born again of the Spirit. And this transformation is possible, not by your efforts, not by your looks, praise God. Not by your smarts, it's not possible by your biology. It's not possible by your family heritage, your length of service, the impressiveness of your service, the costliness of your service, the number of Bible verses that you've memorized, or any other accolades or attributes or accomplishments. None of that is what makes you a child of God. It is the presence of the Spirit of God who converts someone when they hear the gospel and they believe on Christ. To worship in the Spirit is to serve in God's presence and from God's presence in joyful obedience to his truth and the reason some of you are struggling is because you not yet believed on Christ you're trying to tape your life together by doing a bunch of good stuff and you're wholly unsatisfied on the inside because it isn't satisfying until it's motivated by the glory and the presence of the spirit of God who is actually uniting you with Christ by faith so what does Paul write next He gives us a second essential for being a child of God. Unlike the the Judaizers who boast in the flesh, the true child of God glories in Christ Jesus. If you've got the Spirit, it's not about what you can do or what you've done or who you are. It's about Jesus and who He is. The Spirit of God inside of you makes you delight in Jesus. Notice that we boast not just in any old Jesus, by the way, but in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? 
We glory in the promise, righteous, appointed, and anointed King from Israel, who is very God of God, who came to take our sin and conquer death by living in perfect obedience to the Father, taking God's wrath for us on the cross, rising on the third day, proving that He's God, and that the Father has accepted His sacrifice in full, and that all who turn from trying to have life in their fleshly passions and pleasures and pursuits and trust in Him will have the very presence of God and the promise of life everlasting in Him. So in whom do we glory, church? We glory in Christ Jesus the Lord. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Who's the one who has the Spirit? It's not the one who never sins but the one who keeps on turning to Jesus. It's the one who stumbles and looks to the Savior not to try and cover it up with some religious ritual. It's not the one who stumbles and says, well, I'll do ten right things to make up for the one wrong thing. It's the one who stumbles and says, I could never do enough to make up for the one secret sin, so I'm going to go to the Savior and I'm going to broadcast it far and wide because I need to get delivered from this indwelling sin because my Savior is worthy of my life. It's the one who just can't get over Jesus and what Jesus has done who is a child of God. And that's what leads us to the third essential characteristic of a Christian. They worship God in the Spirit or by the Spirit who leads them to to glory and Christ. And if you're really glorying in Christ, look at the, the natural progression of thought. Look at what happens. Positively, if we have the Spirit, we glory in Christ. Negatively, we put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. What does that mean? It means we don't stake any of our assurance of our salvation. It means we don't stake any persuasion that we are included among God's people because of our flesh, because of our contribution. We can't glory in Christ and simultaneously put confidence in our flesh. They don't go together. It's like oil and water. It's not like I'm glorying in Christ and glorying in myself. No, look at Christ. Don't look at me. We don't glory in circumcision. We don't glory in being a great mom or dad. We don't glory in avoiding processed foods. I mean, you say, we, we got a whole culture out there that people are like justifying themselves and feeling pretty good about themselves, thank you very much, because they never went to McDonald's. Well, congratulations. That's not going to do you any good in eternity. I'm going to go have a cheeseburger after worship. I mean, we, we add so much stuff to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. Now, some of you are avoiding processed foods because it's, it's wisdom, and I get that. But you don't have to tell everybody else, right, about how great you are. We, we don't put confidence in our flesh. We don't put confidence in our earthly citizenship. L- let me level with you for a moment, dear American there's going to be a lot, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, I hope I'm wrong, but there's going to be a lot of Americans who spend eternity separated from God because they had some weird theology that being American made them a better person than other people and they were on God's good side as an American. 
being American is not going to do you any, any good when you stand before King Jesus in eternity. It won't matter one whit. It's, it's not your citizenship, your earthly citizenship that's going to save you. It's not eating all the right things or not eating all the right things. It's not your birth order. Well, I'm better than my sister. Woo! It's not your diet and exercise program. It's not your income. It's not your giving. It's not being recognized or not being recognized. It's none of that. The true child of God delights in Jesus and doesn't glory in his flesh. Jesus is his passion, his pursuit, his reason for confidence that we've been adopted by the Father through the gift of his Son. Everything God requires from us, he gives to us in Christ. So what do we do? We rejoice in the Lord. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We clearly and severely reject heresies that add us to the gospel. And we live as his people, confidently serving him in the spirit, glorying in Christ, and rejecting anything that elevates us and diminishes what Christ has done and who he he is. He is our everything, and Jesus is enough. Would you pray with me? As our deacons make preparations to serve the Lord's Supper. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that Christ is enough. God, we ask that we would glory in him alone. God, that you would lead us to to walk in righteousness, not to be seen, but for the glory of our Savior. God, that we would put no confidence in the flesh. And that we would boast heartily in the Lord and all that he has done. God, as we come to the Lord's Supper table, we want to prepare our hearts. We want to ask you to expose within our hearts any glorying in ourself. God, God, root it out of our lives. Lead us to utter dependence upon King Jesus. Make us a people who who walk in the Spirit and by the Spirit and delight in King Jesus alone. We pray it for His glory and our good and the good of those who are yet to trust Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.